0: Alright guys, if you have your Bible take and find Revelation chapter 7. This morning we're coming to the final chapter in the section of Revelation that began back in chapter 4. I've told you so many times that hopefully you could rehearse it back to me in your sleep that the book of Revelation naturally... Divides up into seven different sections. It's 22 chapters, but it's not a linear book. It's a cyclical book that, that runs through seven different cycles. Those uh, cycles, each cycle runs, is describing the whole period of time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. It describes that same period of time over and over again. You'll notice as we make our way through the book uh, that it, it runs through those seven sections with increasing intensity. Um... But in other words, these seven sections are describing what is often referred to as the church age, the age we live in now. And this morning, we're, we're wrapping up the second of those seven sections. Uh, you know, so uh, chapter four, just to rehearse a little bit and, and run our way back through this since we're coming to the end of the second section, what was, this, what was the whole of the second section showing us? Chapter four reminded us that God is on his throne uh, he is sovereign over the, the world that he made. Chapter 5, chapters 4 and 5 were, were, are two chapters in our Bibles, but they're, they're, they're relaying to us one vision, one scene around the throne of God. Chapter 5 introduced us to a scroll, and that scroll represent, represents the, the unfolding of history and of events um, during this church age in which we now live and those those events through the through the unfolding of the scroll would include at least two things the salvation of God's people the judgment of God's enemies and chapter 5 what we found was that the scroll was sealed up with seven seals in other words those those things that had not yet been executed brought to pass brought about in God's eternal plan and, and, and so in the chapter, they cry out earlier in the chapter, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? In other words, who, who is worthy, who is able to bring about God's plan, to, to, to bring about and to execute His purpose for all things? And we learned that in that chapter that Jesus was the only one worthy to do that. And three times in chapter 5, the heavenly host erupted in doxology of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago then, we were in chapter 6, and, and the seals began to be broken, and the scroll unfolded, and it, and it unveiled realities and events that would be uh, recurring. So what, what you find is, is with each seal, it's not necessarily describing one particular event but but a reality that would be present during this whole age and um and and just for example we saw uh we saw one of the, the second scroll represented was a red horse which we said represented physical persecution of believers in fact uh even martyrdom that christians will face in the world from the first coming to the second coming of jesus then we saw in another scroll a black horse which we saw was economic persecution, economic hardships that believers will face because of their faith until Jesus comes back. We saw it in another one a pale horse, which is not hardship peculiar to Christians, but hardships that every person just living in a fallen world will face. Sickness and disease and pestilence. And we, just, we, we made the, the judgment that, you know, Christians in the world have to bear all of these hardships with more added to them because of their faith. You know, all things that... that uh, yeah, and, and, and that these things will continue until, we saw in the sixth seal, Jesus comes back. And the cataclysmic... That's the only word I know to use, what we see described there. The cataclysmic judgment that Jesus' return will bring, not only on unbelievers, but on the whole creation. It's quite a description. This morning we come to chapter 7. And the, the scene... And the direction changed dramatically. If chapter 6 was unwavering in its um, pronouncements on unbelievers, chapter 7 is unmatched in its promise to believers. And uh, there are things in this chapter that need to be thought through carefully, such as, and I've already hinted at this in a previous week, who are the 144,000? Who are they? And, uh, but the, here's the overall message, I believe, of this chapter. God is able to seal His people and to protect them and save them from His judgments. God is able to seal His people and to protect them and to save them from His judgments. Not only is He able, He will. And to get that point and to see it clearly, we have a lot of ground to cover. So if you have found Revelation chapter 7 in your Bible, I would invite you to follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. A sevenfold ascription. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask for your help as we uh, read and think about it and and study it together. Would you give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see? Would you give us minds to understand this, um, this incredibly important a revelation you've given to us. Would you give us um, hearts to embrace and love the truth that you reveal here? Would you give us wills to obey whatever it is you uh, lead us to respond, however you lead us to respond? Or would you give us all ears to hear? Would you please give me the help that I need to teach? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. What I want to do this morning is basically walk back through this chapter together. And try to answer the big questions in it, just sort of interpretive questions, uh, as well as uh, yeah, what the, what the main point of the, of, the, of the chapter is. So let's think first about the sealing of believers. That's the first point, the ceiling of believers. Now to begin, I want actually to start back in uh, chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. And the description there as we noted in chapter 6, verses 15 to 17, is of the return of Christ. So look there again with me, chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand look look again these these are believers unbelievers from every class of of people on earth terrified of the of the coming of of Je- the second coming of jesus and the judgment that he is bringing with him and look again particularly at verse 17 particularly that last phrase for the The great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question. Who can stand? That's the lingering question. Who can stand in that day? Who can stand when this judgment comes with the return of Christ? Well, certainly not the unbelievers. They're calling for the the rocks and the hills to fall on them. Again, Old Testament, Psalm 1-5 tells us unequivocally that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Okay? And we saw their, their, their terror in, at the end of chapter 6. So they couldn't stand. Who can stand? Not them. Can anybody, though? Who can stand in that day? And it's with that idea that you come into chapter 7. And let's enter and, and look at the details of this chapter. Look how it begins in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back. The four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. These, these four angels are standing at the four corners of the earth, just meaning uh, this represents the whole earth. And what are, they, what are they said to be doing? They're holding back the four winds of the earth. Based on the surrounding context of this verse, the winds seem to be the impending judgment of God. Okay? So... Um, And at this point in time, it seems that chapter 7, verse 1, is actually rewinding just a bit. It seems like it's taking us back to just before the second coming of Christ. Just before the judgment is revealed when He comes. And they're holding it back for something. What are they holding it back for? Look again at verses 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of Of the living God and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea saying do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads these verses are crucial to to um, the the main point of this chapter and the idea will will come up again throughout the book of Revelation this this idea of sealing um, particularly on their foreheads. That's, that's, a, that's a, a prominent image throughout the, the, the book of Revelation. Sealing is mentioned twice in those two verses, verses 2 and 3. Uh, first in verse 2, when you have an angel uh, coming, uh, and, and it says he's coming with the, the seal of the living God in his hand. And what does verse 3 say is, is done with that seal? It is not to bring judgment until we have sealed uh, the, the servants of God on their foreheads. You'll see that idea again in Revelation 14.1, for example. It says believers have the name of the Lamb and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Uh, and the description in, uh, of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4, at the very end of the book, we read, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads that idea of being on their foreheads carries the idea of ownership of belonging to the Lord his name is on their foreheads and here his seal is on their foreheads this verse in Revelation chapter 7 verse 3 again is not strictly talking about his name it's his seal and it carries the idea of protection of, of, of sealing us for protection It's the same idea that you find in the Old Testament at the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, when they put the blood of the lamb around the doorpost uh, to seal their home against the judgment when the death angel would pass through. In the same way, God is here placing His seal of protection on His people. Protection from what? Again, we saw it to begin with. Protection from the final judgment. Remember the final question of chapter 6. Who can stand? Who can stand? That's the question this, this chapter is answering. I mean, just to fast forward a bit, look at verse 9 of chapter 7. What are they doing? After this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages. What are they doing? Standing. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So this chapter begins with God placing his seal of protection on his people. Typologically, that, 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 that blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost pointed forward to the blood of Christ on the cross for his people, which is his seal on us. The judgment that Christ already took on himself. What a... What a to, to, to read the description of the second coming of Jesus in chapter 6, and then to read the the... the, the, the the comfort and the, and the peace of chapter 7, it, it, it just is mind-blowing. It's like, it's a, it's a vivid description of like what we sing so much in It Is Well With My Soul. In that last stanza of It Is Well With My Soul, uh, and Lord haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the, the, the clouds be rolled back like a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. That's chapter 6. Even so, it's well with my soul. That's chapter 7. And the chapter that has, or the, 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 when you get to chapter 7 though, as, the, as it keeps going, the question that has vexed so many people of different theological persuasions is, is the description it gives of his people who are sealed and who are protected in that day. And it's specifically we're introduced to the 144,000. Let's think a little more carefully about that question. Who are, second point, who are the 144,000? This is, to, to readers of, of the book of Revelation, this is one of, the, one of the big ones. You got, So, a few big numbers in Revelation. You've got this one, the 144,000. You've got the number 666. You've got the 1,000 year reign in chapter 20. What exactly is that? And, uh, and so we'll deal with 144,000 today. Right on the heels of verse 3 where it says the, the, the angel waits on sending the judgment until the servants of God are sealed. The very next verse presumably begins to describe who those servants of God are that are sealed. And it describes them as 144,000. And not only that, not only just 144,000, but 144,000 that are made up of 12,000 from 12 different tribes of Israel. Some have, um, some have, have uh, and we see that, and you know, I heard the number of sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, there have been different interpretations of this. Um, some believe it has to do with The nation of Israel coming to faith in Christ. I mean, take that more literally. 12,000 from the tribes of the sons of Israel. So is this Israel coming to faith in Christ? I I do believe that before Christ comes back, there will be more Jews turning to faith in Christ, but but I don't know that that's what this is talking about. Um, Why? I think there's very good reason, and I'm about to give you what I believe are the strongest reasons for understanding this more symbolically than literally um, yeah so let's let's think about that and see what John was trying to do I just want to walk you through some of my reasons for from Scripture itself for understanding the 144,000 as a symbolic number for all the redeemed of the earth all the redeemed again I don't know of a single number in revelation that is literal uh, you know we'll get to that so it's not just jews over the nation or the nation of israel it's definitely not just literally 144,000 of them it's 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 uh, it's it's symbolic for all the redeemed so here what are my reasons first of all when you think about i just mentioned it when you think about numbers in revelation almost none of them if not any if 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 it's none of them at all are to be taken literally we i don't we don't have time to belabor this particular point we've noted it already in this study Uh, We've seen examples of it. Most prominently, how is the Holy Spirit referred to in the book of Revelation? As the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit is not seven, but seven is an idea, a number symbolizing perfection. He's the Holy Spirit, right? The numbers three and seven and twelve seem to be the most prominent, along with any number that might be a multiple of them. So 144,000 is a multiple of 12. So that's one reason. Just numbers in general aren't to be taken literally. Second of all, when John describes these servants uh, of, in verse 4 who were being sealed as being of the sons of Israel, the New Testament already elsewhere reinterprets that. Uh, phrase and similar ones to mean not just Jews, uh, but all the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike. Let me just give you a few examples. You might jot down these references. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. I'll read that for you. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one, Paul says, is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one who is is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. So there Paul is saying that a Jew or belonging to the people of God is open to anyone who uh, is born again by the spirit, not by the letter. It's an inward reality. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring but through Isaac shall your offspring be named now how does Paul understand that this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring so not all Israel belong to Israel the church now in Christ has been grafted in and the people of God are Jew and Gentile one new man in Christ Ephesians 2 15 that's why for example Galatians chapter 6 verse 16 Paul can refer to the church the entire church, church both Jew and Gentile as the Israel of God so when John, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, describes the servants of God who are sealed as being from every tribe of the sons of Israel, the New Testament itself leads us not to take this as a literal, necessarily to take as a literal nation of Israel, but inclusive of all the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, all who are believers in Christ, all believers. That's confirmed again by a third reason. When you you pay close attention to this list of 12 tribes in verses 5 to 8, who is and who is not on the list, it's not like any other list of tribes that you will find in the Old Testament uh, or anywhere in Scripture. It becomes really obvious that John is doing something not literal. He lists 12 tribes but in a most unusual way. John was a good Jew, right? A devout one. He knew the Old Testament better than we do. He knew his own people. This is an unusual list of the tribes, and no doubt John knew it, and it was on purpose. What's unusual about it? Well, for one thing, the, in the Old Testament descriptions of the 12 tribes or listings of the 12 tribes... They're almost always arranged oldest to youngest, which means the tribe of Reuben would be listed first, but not here. Who's listed first? Judah. That's significant. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi was never counted among the tribes because they were dedicated to the Lord as priests. So you can see that explained in Numbers chapter 1. Don't take my word for it. They didn't have a tribe. Where, but what do we see here? What do we find listed in verse 7? Tribe of Levi. Here's another curiosity. Jacob, later renamed Israel, had 12 sons. Among them was Joseph. But in the Old Testament listing of the 12 tribes, Joseph is not mentioned. Uh, he didn't, he's not listed as, as within tribes. So... Why? Because Levi, one of the twelve, already didn't have a tribe. And so they didn't list Joseph, but his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. You you know, that that makes twelve tribes. But not here. Who is listed right there in verse 8? The tribe of Joseph. And that brings us to the final curiosity of the list, and that is not who is here, but who's not? Who's not listed here in the tribes of Israel? Joseph is mentioned, I said, and so is his son Manasseh, but not Ephraim. He's not here at all. Ephraim is left off entirely, as is the tribe of Dan. He's not here at all. What are you to make of all this? I don't think John was having a senile moment in his old old age. To the contrary... I believe he was intentionally putting this list together in such a way that it would be patently obvious, don't take this literally. But it's not just the Jews. It's all believers, all the people of God. I believe Dan, for example, I think Dan and Ephraim maybe are left off the list because of their history of idolatry and and, and et cetera. But I don't think John is saying necessarily that nobody from those tribes are going to be saved. It's not a literal list. It's symbolic of something else. These are the faithful people of God. 12,000, a perfect, complete number of each. 144,000, a symbolic number of total and complete perfection. All God's people. Not one missing. Let me add to this reason, in fact, um, and see this as the same group of people described in verse 9 verse 9 says it was a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe from all tribes and peoples and languages I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 5 maybe um, I want to rehearse it though here just to review I think, I think John's doing something here that is common in Revelation just to review turn back to chapter 5 quickly And when you get there, let's look at verses 5 and 6 again. First, in verse 5, John hears something. And one of the elders said to me. So he's hearing someone saying something to him. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered So he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. So in verse 5, John hears something. And it's the the lion of the tribe of Judah. In verse 6, he sees something. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. That's the Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth. So he hears a lion, he sees a lamb. Not two different things. It's two different descriptions of the same thing. And that's, that's common in Revelation. He hears then he sees two different descriptions of the same thing. Now back to chapter 7. And in verse 4, John hears something. He hears, I heard, the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel but then in verse 9 he sees something after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb so just as in chapter 5 when John hears one thing and sees another also here he hears what is described as 144,000. When he sees it, it's a multitude that no one could number from every tribe. Just like in, in chapter 5, the lion and the lamb were descriptions, two descriptions of the same thing, in chapter 7, the great multitude from every tribe and the 12,000 from the 12 funky tribes of Israel are two ways of describing the same group of people. And now having said all that, Let me give you what I believe is the most compelling evidence of all. That 144,000 are symbolic of all believers. Turn over to Revelation chapter 14. A little preview of things to come. Revelation 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads and I heard a voice from heaven look he's looking and hearing I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder the voice I heard was the sound of the harpist harpists playing on their hearts and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was no lie found, for they are blameless. So the 144,000 are mentioned twice in those verses. And how are they described? In verse 3, they are described as those who have been redeemed from the earth. And in verse 4, as those who have been redeemed from mankind. So let Scripture interpret Scripture. It's a great Reformation principle. Let the Bible shed light on itself. And you see ample evidence that in chapter 7, which you can turn back to now, one hundred forty-four thousand is a is a symbolic number of every believer from every tribe. As Revelation nine put it seven nine puts it from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, which means the the one hundred forty-four thousand are not the special forces of Christianity, right? If you have repented and believed in Christ, it's you. It's you. You are. I don't know which tribe you're in, but you're in one of them. So now that we've spent a a great deal of time figuring out who the 144,000 are that are mentioned here, it is tempting to miss the forest for the trees. So don't miss the main point that is still being made. The main point is still that God seals and protects his people from the coming judgment. God will seal and protect his people from every trial they face. Because look again at verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, my understanding is this great tribulation is not necessarily something that is reserved for the very end of the end times. This tribulation is a reality throughout the church age. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around someone who believes that the tribulation is something just for the end times, describing what happened in the first century under Domitian when they lined the streets of Rome with crucified Christians And when the sun started going down, they lit them on fire to light the streets. If that's not persecution, if that's not tribulation, I don't know what is. And it's been going on throughout the church age. And even back in Revelation chapter 2, we were told that the Lord Christ was about to throw the church in Thyatira into a, quote, great tribulation. And here in in chapter 7, verse 14, believers are said to be delivered out of it. Out of it. Meaning they had to endure it, but they are delivered out of it. God had sealed them and protected them to stand there, symbolically speaking, wearing white robes that had been washed and made white by the blood of the Lamb. This is how the the, the 144,000 are redeemed and sealed from the wrath of God with the blood of the Lamb. As as it says, verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that brings us to the last point here this morning, which is the worship in heaven. The worship in heaven. Verses 10 through 12 uh, really set the tone for the rest of the chapter. Praise God for the salvation that he has provided for his people. Again, verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And verses 15 and 17 are a glimpse into heaven. This is just evidence that Revelation is a cyclical book because what you see in, in these verses in chapter 7 are almost identical to what you'll see at the very end of the book in chapter 21. But, and so it's very familiar language in that regard. Especially in verse 17 when the Lamb is in their midst God wipes away every tear from their eyes. This is the final state of the redeemed. We find it in the middle of the book. In the first third of the book. The final state of the redeemed in the Lord. The road is is hard from here. That's, That's what Revelation is getting at. It's a gritty book. The road is hard from here. Jesus said there would be tribulation. But if Revelation... Chapter 7 tells us anything. It's the reward far outweighs any of the cost. Let's, let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you so much for this encouraging word. And I pray, um, that, I reiterate what we prayed at the beginning. I pray that um, you have given us and would continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to believe and cherish and love your word and wills to obey. Give us grace to discuss these things around our tables for the next couple of minutes. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.